Amen. Thank you, everyone. You may be seated. Good morning. Wow, it's great to see you here today. We've been waiting all summer for a day like this, haven't we? Uh, a little cooler outside, a little more enjoyable to be away from, from home and uh, not to have to suffer through so much humidity. But it is great to see you. We are missing some folks this morning. Our seniors rolled in uh, uh, just about seven hours ago from their big adventure of a trip. And uh, so I imagine they're recovering well this morning. We look forward to hearing them uh, back soon and knowing some of their stories and adventures indeed on a trip. And I'm sure we'll hear some of that. Well, today is National Back to Church Sunday. Aren't you glad you're in a church? And uh, we are thankful for the opportunity today to celebrate that. You know, it's an interesting kind of a dynamic. It is a reminder that it's a good time of year to sort of set aside the, in, uh, the routines of summer, which often take us different places at different times. School has started back. I hope that's a routine that's uh, settled in well. And uh, families are getting back into those routines also. And uh, so it's a good time to think about getting back to church and getting that part of our routine and making it a priority for our, for our lives and for our families. Today I want to talk to you about the church. I think there is some confusion in our culture about the church. And I hope today to at least address some of those issues and try to give us some biblical perspective. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. And let's look today a little bit at the church. If there's a place where there should be no confusion about the church, it should be in a Bible-believing uh, congregation of born-again believers. What do you think about when you think about the church? Who do you think about when you think about the church? What comes to mind? I believe if you went out to the general population and asked people about, what do you think about the church? Some people would reference uh, a building. The English language has done that to the word church. In the New Testament sense, a church is not a building. I'll mention more of that in a moment. Some people might think of a hierarchy, building upon some type of religious structure or tradition. I think in understanding what the church is, it's important for us to get some perspective of what the church is not. So let's start there before we get into our text. Number one, church is not a social club. To believe otherwise is to be terribly wrong about what a church is. It's not a social club. A church is not merely a place of religious experience or religious ceremony. A church is not a hierarchy of priests and bishops and archbishops and so on it goes. A church is not a denomination or even a religious tradition. Do not well define a church. The church is not a replacement for Israel. That may sound odd to you, but there are some people who would take that position. The church is not a place of self-help programs. Oh, you'll be better, just go to church a few times. That's not the purpose of the church either. The church is not a source of entertainment. Though it may be a place of worship, and I trust it is in its operation, the church is not a worship center. The church is not a place where people attend. 
you're either a member of a church or you are not. It's very plain. It's not a place where people attend. You're a member of a church. Attendance simply implies a physical presence. Here you are, physical presence. That's all attendance means. It's about the most shallow definition of church involvement you can come up with. Attendance implies a physical presence. Membership, being a member of a church, denotes a commitment of a person to the work of the gospel and to the Great Commission. A commitment to love God and to love others. A commitment to grow in faith and maturity. As the Apostle Paul often says, to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But a church is not a place of mere attendance. I think that's the biggest trap some people fall into. Well, I attend church. Well, you attend a ball game too, but that, does that make you a member of the Atlanta Braves baseball team? Someone as well illustrated this way. Sitting in a church no more makes you a Christian than sitting in a garage makes you a car. I think that's very true. Let's keep in mind one of the pitfalls of our culture is to say, well, I attend a church. Well, that's a pretty shallow definition even on the best of terms. So what is a church? In the New Testament sense of the word, a church is not an it. There's where the English language has played with this word over the years and over the centuries, really. And we have put in our mindset the church is the building. And we drive our way around town and we go, oh, there's a church and there's a church and there's a church. And it's, oh, yeah, you turn left at the church or you go past the church and turn right. We, we use the church term to reference a building, but that is not what the New Testament defines a church as. The New Testament church is not an it it's an us. It's an us. In the New Testament sense of the word, us. Us being born-again ones who have publicly professed Christ as personal Lord and Savior and have been baptized and have publicly submitted themselves for membership to the church. The church is us. It's where members strive together to learn to love, to live, to see others involved in our lives and our lives involved in others as we grow together, committed to growing in our faith. The church is an us. The scripture gives us a very clear picture of that reality. But again, our language has struggled some in English as trying to get some clarity to that. If we step back in time 450, maybe 500 years, we would hear Christians struggling with this discussion about church. Because what had happened through the culture of Europe and the religious influences of Europe was that the church became misidentified. It became the religious tradition, the structure. It became the priest and the bishop and the archbishop. It became a structure and a formal structure that left many people realizing 
this wasn't the way the gospel should be lived out. It became a thing. So much so that some 450 to 500 years ago, Christians, when they read the Bible, and particularly when they translated it into English, the English Bible before the King James, the Geneva Bible, the translators of that Bible, whenever they came across the Greek word, instead of writing church in English, they wrote congregation. Their perspective was, we have gone too long to think of the church as a thing. We need to think of it as a people. We need to think of it as an us. And so they diligently, in that translation, went through and removed the word church and replaced it with the word congregation. We understand the congregation. I think it's, a, it's an interesting point because the congregation is understood to be us. The people, the assembly of born-again believers. The church, therefore, takes on a face. It's the face of a congregation. It's the face of real people who have come to the reality of understanding Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As other translations would soon follow, including the King James, that transition came back to the word church. And so today, when we read in, in the King James and other Bible translations since, you are most likely to see the word church used. There's not the sensitivity to that, to that discussion that there once was among English-speaking Christians. But I submit to you, we in our culture today still have found ourselves struggling with the idea of exactly what a church is. And in doing so, we diminish our understanding of what a church is. We see it as the building. We see it as the tradition. We see it as a structure. Well, there's the pastor and the deacons and the trustees and the leadership. And, and, and we got this mindset of what a church is. And Scripture certainly doesn't limit our understanding of those things. But in the English language, we just have struggled with this. It's not unique to our generation for sure. It's been around for a long time. And I think because of that, there's been a lot of confusion. Even among Christians about exactly what's a church. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. And let's find ourselves at the very beginning of the church. Because I think the scripture gives to us here some great instruction to remind us. As 21st century Christians, born-again ones, if your faith is in trust and, 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 and is in Christ today, gives us as 21st century Christians a perspective of the church from a first century account. The book of Acts follows the Gospels. The, books of, the book of Acts was written by the Gospel writer Luke. So when you read the New Testament and you read the Gospels, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have the account recorded for us of the ministry and some of the life of Christ and all that happened as a result of that. Most of us could probably give something of a pretty good outline of that story and that account. Of Christ, the one promised who was born to a virgin, 
who grew to be a real person. But what was unique about him? He was all God and all man. God in human flesh. His life would be perfect because he's the son of God. His life would be a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of humanity, lost, decrepit, eternally doomed apart from the sacrifice of Christ. His death only was a step toward a resurrection. And on that third day, he arose again. And following that resurrection, would be with his disciples and continuing to minister and to prove who he was for some 40 days. We get a bit of that account in Acts chapter 1. But then we're told about the ascension, where Christ himself in a resurrected body ascended up to the very presence of God the Father. And the angel stood there to say to the disciples, why gaze ye up? <laughs> well, I would be too. Don't you know that this same Christ, who is now ascended, shall return? Amen. The promises had been given. But Jesus left his disciples with an important instruction. Go to Jerusalem. Wait there. Wait there for a day that will be designated Pentecost. Pentecost was already a distinction in the Jewish calendar. And so sure enough, the disciples went there. Well, they went to an upper room. Was it the same upper room they had the Passover meal in? Very possibly. It seems to be a, scripturally at least a good indication. And we're told in chapter 1 they were gathered, 120 of them. They took care of some important pressing business. Judas, of course, has died. It's now time to replace him with another to fulfill the role of an apostle. Matthias has chosen through that process in chapter 1. When we get to chapter 2, the day of Pentecost has come. And we're told that the Holy Spirit makes his presence known in a very unique way. And that signs and wonders are happening. One of those signs being that the apostles began to speak in languages they had not learned. If you go back and read earlier in chapter 2, you'll find that there are some 16 different nationalities referenced that were in Jerusalem. And the testimony that would be given of them is that they each heard the apostles speak in their native language. An amazing miracle that the Lord was working through languages. God controls our languages. And now comes the time in which Peter steps up. Peter preaches a sermon. Word began to spread through Jerusalem. There's something happening. Let's go see what it is. As word spread, the crowd would gather, no doubt by the thousands. They were wondering what was happening. Peter steps up and he preaches. We won't take the time to read the entirety of the sermon, but that's what Acts chapter 2 is. 
we catch up. I do want to catch up with it, though, toward the end of his words, starting in verse 36. Peter speaking, he has presented plainly that Jesus Christ was the Son of God crucified. Here in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, let therefore all the house of Israel know, assuredly, Peter says, therefore, right? Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. We read those two terms with some, some sense of familiarity. The word Lord, translated, means master. The creator, as it were, the one in charge of all, the one omnipotent, as we sang about in the song. The Lord. He's also designated as the Christ. Christ is a title for Jesus. It's a title that means the anointed one. The one that was promised back in the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis chapter 3 and through every reference of a coming one, that would be the Christ. That Jesus was that one appointed to be master, Lord, designated as the supreme omnipotent one, indicating his deity. But he's also Christ, the one who came, the one who came to fulfill the call of being the sacrifice for human sin and the only way to salvation. That's who ye crucified, are the words of Peter in verse 36. And they knew the reality. It hadn't been too many weeks prior that the arrest, the conviction, the crucifixion, the resurrection had occurred. There were multitudes who saw Jesus. Even 500 at one appearance, we're told later in the scriptures, after his resurrection. Look at their response in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked to their heart, is the way the King James says it. More modern translations will use the word cut to the heart, or they came under extreme conviction. They knew the truth. They could deny it no longer. Jesus Christ, Lord. They could deny it in their hearts no longer. They came under conviction, and their conviction caused a response. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I will submit to you that question needs to come from the lips of every human being. What shall we do? What do we do now? Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ. What shall we do? That question is echoed in other places of Scripture. Acts, particularly, tells us the account of the jailer in Philippi who would ask a similar question. What must I do? Saul, the great persecutor of the church, who later would come to realization of his own sins and be born again in Acts chapter 9 records for us, he would say, Lord, what, what shall I do? This question 
echoes through the halls of human history as none other does because it recognizes that we as frail, sinful, weak human beings will someday stand before a holy, righteous, omnipotent God. And there's only one question to be asked when you come to that realization. What shall I do? Peter had a response. A response that is echoed not only in the pages of scriptures, but down through the centuries of human history. Peter said unto him, repent. Turn. That word simply means turn. Turn away from your from your ignorance, from your selfishness, from your pride. Turn away from thinking you've got everything in life worked out and turn. Turn to Jesus. Repent and come to that place where you realize that there is no other answer for your human malady. There is no other answer for your sin. There is no other answer for your pride except for Jesus. Repent, he says. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. These two events recorded for us here are two events that are linked in Peter's answer. and his response to them, it says, for the remission of sins. And having done that, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. We know, of course, as the Scripture expands this truth, that coming to Christ is not an act that is done of human merit. It is done in recognition of our limited capacity and our inability to save ourselves. And we come humbly to the cross and we say to the Lord Jesus, I repent. I submit myself to you, and I receive the gift of eternal life. And that eternal life brings with it spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. Having done that, having made that profession of faith, then it's time to be baptized as a public testimony to demonstrate to others your profession of faith. Peter's words still are the solution to human sin before holy God. Repent. For the promise is to you, he goes on to say. For the promise is to you. There's a promise. Those promises are echoed many places of the New Testament Scripture. The promise that Christ will save us. The promise that we have eternal life, having received Christ. The promise, as Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. I had the privilege of conducting the funeral service yesterday for Juanita Deans. What a, what a godly woman of wonderful influence. And the service was a sweet service because of the testimony she bore. And to hear others echo the thoughts that permeated her testimony of being someone who knew Christ, someone who lived their life 
for the glory of the Lord. And those of us here who knew her knew that testimony well. The promise of new life doesn't just give us an eternal home, though that in itself is a wonderful gift. It gives us a new life here, a new reason to live, a new purpose for our existence. There is a promise tied to the offer of salvation. This promise is to you. This promise is to your children and your grandchildren implied by that. This promise is to all those that are far off. That's our story as a born-again believer. We were far off. We were strangers wandering in a weary land and had no promise of hope of anything beyond the misery of the moment. No amount of alcohol or drugs, no amount of lustful desire can take away that moment of misery. The world sure tries, doesn't it? It's when we come to a realization that our only hope, our only trust can be in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the promise. The promise goes to all those whom the Lord shall call. The gospel message still echoes today. I wish it were true, but I have my hesitations to say at every pulpit in America today, I wish the gospel message would ring true. There's where part of the confusion comes in. What is a church? Well, it's a place I attend once a week to go get some encouraging words that I'm really a pretty good person and I can make it on my own. What a falsehood of the perversion of the gospel. The response is not just in words. Look at verse 41. The scripture says, Then they that gladly received, eagerly, willingly, gladly received. They received. They repented. And they were baptized there that very, that very day. Up to that point of about 3,000. Now that's a, that's a preaching service. Can you imagine for a moment? Now all we can do is imagine the sound of repentance. Have you heard the sound of repentance? Those who come realizing their incapacity to have a life worth living. And their tears and their wailing and their crying is of the deepest, most personable, most personal intensity. The sound of repentance. Can you hear the sound of rejoicing? Have you received Christ? Rejoice. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. He has given you eternal life. Have you heard the sound of rejoicing? Have you heard the sound of baptism? The waters in which one says, I will publicly Declare to the world, I'm a follower of Christ and I've been born again. And we hear the splash and the dripping as they come up. Have you ever seen anyone baptized that didn't come up smiling? Because there's a realization that new life has been found and Christ has brought himself into that individual. This went on not just a few hundred times but upwards of 3,000 times. What that must have sounded like. What were the conversations? What were the expressions on their faith, their face and the joy in their heart? How was it given? 
some 3,000. This is what historians and Bible scholars and even casual Bible study will call the birth of the church. Birth is a good word. It's not the organization of a church. It's not the formulation of a religious body. It's a birth of a church made of individuals. It's the us. And in that new experience, in that reality of a church, a body of believers, verse 42 tells us a bit of what they were doing. How did these 3,000 come together and then what? What happened the day after this, the week after this, the month after this? We're told in summary in verse 42, they continued steadfastly. Not the phrase we would use in our modern English, it simply means they continued with determination. They were determined. They continued with determination in the apostles' doctrine. Again, some newer translations will say the apostles' teaching. The apostles hold an important role in this new church, this new congregation, because they were the ones who had had their experience with Christ himself. They had seen the miracles, heard the words. They had themselves been convicted and they had come to a realization that it was Christ. He would be Master, Lord, Savior. And so their teaching, as directed by the Holy Spirit, becomes the foundation for their understanding. Their preaching, using, of course, only the Old Testament, because that's all they had, as we would say it today, the scriptures of the of the Hebrews, they use that as their foundation for teaching. Church historians tell us that through those first two or three, four centuries, much of the preaching of Christ came from two portions of the Old Testament. The book of Psalms, what a great place to go. And the book of Isaiah, because he foreshadows Christ there in so many places. They continued determined to learn of the truth of Scripture. I submit to you that is still the calling of us as a church. Learn the truths of Scripture. We are called to glean from it eternal truth and eternal perspective. We are called to see it as James discusses it in chapter 1 of his writing as a mirror to show us our limitations and our incapacities. And yet through the scripture, we find the truth that will help shape our thinking, our attitudes, our perspectives about life. The apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is a key and important and essential part to a functioning church, a local church. And it's important that that doctrine be built upon the truth of Scripture. 
here at this congregation of believers, the Bible is central to everything we do. It is preached from this pulpit. It is taught in the classrooms. It is central to our outreach ministries. It is the core of where our faith rests in written word. The apostles' doctrine. We still today echo those truths. It also says this assembly of believers gathered in fellowship. A word that in Greek implies joining together. There's some good imagery in our English language for this word. The idea of locking arms. We will lock arms together and stand for righteousness and truth and proclaim the gospel. That's fellowship. The idea of standing shoulder to shoulder as men would in military formation, ready to defend and advance. It's a good picture image of fellowship. Again, our English language has somehow caused us to think fellowship has something to do with fried chicken and potato salad. But I submit to you the scriptural call for fellowship implies much more of a backbone much more of a determination, much more of a purpose. Fellowship, locking arms, standing together for the truth. There's the breaking of bread referenced. That phrase, most biblical scholars will agree, applies to the communion service. A term that we will still use today occasionally, we're going to observe the breaking of bread. It's the communion service. It's the recognition of, re of receiving the elements of the unleavened bread and the unfermented wine that we might recognize the body and the blood of Christ. Communion is a time of great celebration. It's a time of great reflection. We're told, to, we're told in the communion that we need to confess our sins before we receive it. You know, there was a tradition of some churches, and, and many Baptist churches did this, Hardly 150, 175 years ago, the communion was announced. It will be Sunday. They would have a special service on Thursday nights to come together that they might do nothing but confess their sins before the Lord and to make sure their relationships are right with each other. Because they did not want to receive the communion unprepared spiritually. And it says at the end of verse 42, in prayers. They continued determined to pray. To pray and lift up their adoration and praise before the Lord, no doubt, but to pray for the, for the work of the gospel. To pray for the apostles, the leaders. Later, of course, there will be deacons added into this. For the formation of the church as it seeks to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prayers. And of course, prayers for personal needs. Prayers of supplication for others. So many examples of prayers, and, and I'm sure echoed in their thoughts, as it should be in ours, the, the very model prayer that Jesus himself said here. Use this as your model for prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, we know the words, right? Let that be your model of prayer. Those are things the church was doing. 
I submit to you today in 21st century Christian America, we still need to have this mindset of doing these things and doing them well and doing them continually with determination and steadfastness of our hearts and of our minds. Let's continue reading as we work our way through the end of the chapter here just briefly. In fear, reverence, respect, and awe. Some of the newer translations will use the word awe here. Reverential awesomeness of what God was doing came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. There's a few places where those details are given to us. You go to the next chapter, there's a great healing. We can only imagine what the Lord was doing. I think we're simply expressions of the ministry of Christ and the wonders and signs that he did were now demonstrated in the, in the, the hands and the words of the apostles. It was a unique time in the church, for sure, at this beginning. And all that believed were together. Not just together physically, although we know that was happening. They were gathering in houses. We'll see later, it says, from house to house, down in verse 46. We know that they were together at the temple. They went daily to the temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is not just a building. It's a building with a courtyard. And they would gather in the courtyard. Jesus had done this many times. And they continued that as they came to the courtyard of the temple daily to preach and to present the truth of Scripture. They were together. They were together mentally. They were together for, again, working together for the cause of the gospel. It says they had all things in common. They had a common bond. What was that common bond? Their faith in Christ. And they sold their possessions, it says. You know what? Their faith meant they were engaged in an activity. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as everyone had need. They were willing to say, my faith is not just about, okay, well, I'm, I guess I'm saved. Let me go on and about my business and about my life. No, they saw their faith was put into works. Again, I echo James chapter 1. Be ye not just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. There was something to do. Do you think that, that doing had an impression on the people and the community there in Jerusalem? Without a doubt. They were willing to, give, to, to sacrifice themselves for the work and the cause of the gospel. Verse 46, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple. They gathered there. And they broke bread from house to house. You know what they realized? We don't have a place to seat all 3,000. Any volunteers? Next Sunday, we're going to meet at somebody's house. We need some, we need some volunteers. Let's meet some houses. Well, get somebody in your community and meet at a house. They met from house to house. They ate their meat. They shared meals with gladness. In singleness of heart, their purpose wasn't just to indulge. Their purpose was to engage. To engage one another with the truth of what they were learning as Christians, as they were growing together. And they were seeing the work of the Lord multiplied. And all the conclusion is given to us in verse 47. Praising God. There's their heart of worship. 
praising God. Praising God done in their individual homes, in their individual lives. And you know what? All the, the expressions of love toward others brought them favor. That's why the scripture says they have it, that they had favor with all the people, all the other people. These Christ followers, they weren't called Christians yet. That's not going to happen for quite a while later in the book of Acts in Antioch. These followers of Jesus, these followers of the way, wow, there really is something different about them. They just don't speak of a faith. They live it out. And as a result of this, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. A church can get easily out of focus in our minds. We think of it as a place to attend. Well, again, that's a pretty shallow understanding of a church, to be honest with you. It's not a place to attend. It's a place where we gather together. And we walk in the doors with an attitude of I'm unlocking arms. And we are here today to praise the Lord, to stand for truth, to proclaim righteousness, and to lift up the Lord, to praise him And we're going to bond ourselves around the gospel that we will serve, that we will see our lives given not just as a, not just as a sacrifice of self to myself, but as a sacrifice of self to the Lord himself. That we give ourselves daily over to him and see his work. The church is an us. Let's realize that. Let's realize the potential of the church. The potential of our church to have such an impact as this. The potential of our church as a congregation of born-again believers to say, where can I lock my arms? What ministry will have your fingerprints on it in this church, in the work and the ministry of this church? What can be said that your voice contributed to the cause? What ideas will you submit to help in a ministry that is needing some more? To say we attend a church, my friends, is a shallow excuse hidden in a lie. Because we are not called to be church attenders. We are called to be church members where we are engaged and active and we will stand tall and proud upon the reality that Jesus Christ is who our Master and Lord is. And there is no other. And to limit that reality is to find ourselves falling short of what God would want us to be as individuals and of what God would want us to be as a congregation. So let us not fall prey to the pitfalls of our culture. Let us not fall prey to the lies of demonic origin that try to diminish the work of the church. What did Jesus say about the work of the church? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Which means to me, the schoolhouse doors have no chance. Which means to me, the office building has no chance. The gospel can intercede in those walls. 
In Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands are reminded, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. I submit to you today, based upon that, just that one verse, plainly said, Christ loves the church. He loves us as born-again believers. And I think the implied question must be faced. Do we love the church? Do we love the church as Christ loved the church? Do we love the church that we're willing to invest ourselves in the work and the ministry of the gospel message that needs to be heard by so many? Let us recommit. Let us respond to the truth of the scripture in our hearts to say, I will commit to serve the Lord through this church and to see it continue the great work of the gospel message. This, after all, is Gospel Baptist Church. And I trust we will live up to that calling and that we will see our congregation, us, do more moving forward than we've ever done before. And may it be said that we seek to be like that first church, that first congregation, that we are those who have found ourselves doing the very same things. We rally around the truth of the doctrine of the scriptures. We gather in fellowship to lock arms, to serve our king and our master, that we will follow the ordinances of baptism and communion in the biblical sense of the word, in the truest of biblical sense, and that we will invest ourselves in prayer and ministry to see this work continue. I trust the scriptures today will find a resting place in our hearts, not just for the moment, but that tomorrow, the next day, next week, we will continue to see the seeds of God's word grow in our hearts as we seek to serve him. Let's bow our heads there. We'll do what I think the scripture calls us to do. Take a moment to reflect. The, the audience of Peter's voice that day had to reply. What shall we do? I submit to you that that question needs to be in our own thinking. What shall we do? What do we do with this? May it be said that we will take this as a reminder, an important reminder of the work of a church is dependent upon us as a congregation. As we submit to the Holy Spirit, as we seek his wisdom, his guidance, as we seek God's blessing and provision, we seek to reap souls for the harvest. We want to see families strengthened through the teaching of the word. We want to see individuals called into ministry. Young people who will say, I hear God's call on my life. And I'm not sure where it may take me, but I, I want to serve the Lord with all that I am. We want to be a congregation where these things are active and alive. And that we don't fall to the cultural temptation just to say, well, I attend a church. Because I do not see that as being the biblical answer as to what do we do. Dear Father, work in our hearts today. We realize we are weak vessels at best. And I pray that you allow us, the congregation of Gospel Baptist Church, to be committed to the truth of your word, to the work of the gospel. 
I pray that you'll allow us to see ourselves as you see us, unable to do anything on our own, and therefore totally dependent upon you. And I pray that you'll give us that attitude and that spirit of cooperation. May we lock arms with one another as we seek to follow our Lord and Savior. And I pray that you will work in our hearts. There is something for us to do. Help us to be sensitive to that leading and allow us the opportunity to see your hand at work. And that as you did for that first church, there might be others who will be added to the church. May we see a great harvest of souls to be added to the church, to the eternal roles of heaven. And I pray that you will work in us and work through us for this cause and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.